medical department, only two go to the bench, and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. I'm Eldra Zeiss, a member of the FMPA education team and your host for today's episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anil Mahotra. Professor Mahotra is a consultant cardiologist and an expert in sports cardiology. He is the lead cardiologist for multiple elite sports teams, including Manchester City, Leeds United and Burnley. He also works with Manchester United, the England national football teams and British cycling. He studied medicine at the University of Cambridge and has also spent time at MIT and Harvard. He completed a PhD in inherited heart diseases and sports cardiology at St. George's University of London. He is now based in Manchester, undertaking a large programme of work around the athlete's heart at Manchester University and Manchester Metropolitan University. He has over 100 peer-reviewed publications and has co-authored and contributed to books in cardiology and medicine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Al. In this episode, we're going to discuss heart conditions and sudden cardiac death in athletes. To start off, tell us about your career to date, including what led to you working with elite footballers. Well, I've always been interested in the heart ever since GCSE biology. When I was holding a pig's heart, thinking what a fascinating organ this is, uh, appreciating the intricacies of the mitral valve anatomy, and the aortic valve, and thinking how this pump can perfuse the whole body and keep us alive. Um, and it works itself as well. So from an early age, um, I had an interest in cardiology, but I kept an open mind at university where I trained, as you mentioned, in the University of Cambridge and um, and thoroughly enjoyed most of my rotations, um, but then ended up following my gut feeling, as it were, towards cardiology and um, managed to um, then undertake my further degree, my, my junior doctor training in and around East Anglia, Papworth Hospitals, before moving across to Oxford to do my cardiology training. And it was at that stage within cardiology where I wanted to dedicate the next few years during my registrar training to a specific area that I was interested in to become an expert in that particular field and to create a niche um, to further our understanding within that particular um, subject. And that's where I came across inherited cardiac conditions when we think of cardiology, we conventionally think of people having heart attacks because of blocked coronary arteries, you know, ischemic heart disease, coronary artery disease leading to heart failure. But I remember as a junior doctor, someone young came at the age of 22 in heart failure, and that really did make me think, okay, it's not from coronary artery disease, but, but, but what sorts of conditions affect younger people? And this individual ended up having a heart transplant, and you know, he had a dilated cardiomyopathy. So a large heart due to um, an inherited 
heart condition causing the heart to enlarge unusually. And so when I started delving into that a bit more, that's what stimulated my interest in inherited heart conditions. And then I looked into research opportunities at that time. And the one that was most appealing to me was based at St. George's University of London um, uh, through the Cardiac Risk in the Young or CRY program that manages to that managed to combine my passion for cardiology with my interest in sports as well. So, you know, and and conditions that affect young, active, exercising individuals. And that's where I undertook my PhD and working with my supervisor and mentor, Professor Sanjay Sharma down at St. George's. Um, you know, I, I, I learned a great deal and gained great insight into managing the athlete's heart, um, looking after a variety of people, patients from sedentary individuals who wanted to undertake exercise to recreational athletes, to semi-professionals and all the way up to you know, Premier League footballers based down in London, um, playing for, for example, Tottenham Hotspur, Chelsea, Crystal Palace and, and Team GB as well. So, And then eventually when I finished my training, I was offered a position up in the north of Manchester where but the speciality hadn't really developed fully. There was a big demand given the sports clubs that you've mentioned and a number of other English football league clubs based up here and cricket and rugby league um, in men's and women's sports, as well as a big NHS demand in inherited cardiac conditions. So I kind of started in Manchester, worked my way down through the country to Oxford and Cambridge and London, and then I've come full circle back to Manchester. That's really interesting. So some of the highest profile medical incidents that have occurred in elite football have unfortunately been cardiac arrests. As many of our listeners will know, immediate care is provided by the pitch side medical staff, but a sports cardiologist won't be involved in this immediate response. So at what point do you become involved in the care of an athlete as a sports cardiologist and what tests and treatment options might you consider? Well, I think you're right. In At that initial point of cardiac arrest, um, as has been so visibly highlighted within football with Fabrice Moamba, for instance, or Christian Eriksen, for instance, at the recent European tournaments uh, last year. The, uh, the first responders are critical. You don't have to be a sports cardiologist, which is why it's so important for anyone to identify when a call for help is required, because time is myocardium, as we say, and the quicker someone can initiate a basic life support response, the better the outcome. In fact, the chance of a successful resuscitation falls by 10% for every minute that CPR is not administered. So you can appreciate the importance of early help, early call, early activation of the necessary findings, um, the necessary um, chain of command. Now, we were lucky to see in Moamba's case and Ericsson's case that that chain of command was instigated appropriately and associated with a successful outcome. Uh, that's the tip of the iceberg, the most visible sport across the country and the globe, um, you know, at the highest tournaments or, or the highest profile tournaments. So that just goes to show the importance of basic life support and then advanced life support. And pitch side attendance and assistance and expertise is critical to that. 
as a sports cardiologist, one can one becomes involved when trying to find out what was the underlying cause. Um, a, a cardiologist, in fact, there was a, 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 a very experienced cardiologist who happened to be in the crowd at Moamba's um, arrest. And you don't necessarily have to be a sports cardiologist to be able to um, identify what an underlying problem is in the acute setting. But certainly after the dust has settled, the majority of these cases, um, according to the literature, are caused by inherited conditions. And that's where we get involved, where we have to assess an individual in the cold light of day and differentiate what the pathological findings, i.e. disease-causing conditions, from physiological findings, from simple cardiac adaptation. The stakes are quite high because you don't want to unnecessarily curtail someone's career by labelling them with a heart condition that may be simply due to an athletic response, an athletic adaptation, nor do we want to erroneously say someone is fit to train and play and then they go on to suffer a potential or subject themselves to the risks of um, cardiac arrest given the stresses of exercise. Thank you for explaining that. Now, what symptoms might a player have, if any, if they have a heart condition that could put them at risk? Well, the conventional cardiac symptoms include chest pain, palpitations, a flutters in the heart, undue shortness of breath, dizziness, loss of consciousness. But what we have found is that in 80% of young individuals, and by young I mean between the ages of 14 and 35, 80% of them are, are largely asymptomatic. So the first presentation is unfortunately sudden cardiac arrest. So they've been harboring a condition and this has then been unmasked during their um, exercise, for instance. Um, and therefore, there are no preceding symptoms in the majority of cases. But then that helps endorse the view of scientific organizations and sporting bodies to actively identify individuals who may be at risk. And that was one of the um, strategies behind Cardiac Risk in the Young, CRY, who funded my PhD as a charitable organization to actively go looking for these conditions out in the community. Now, if you play for a certain football club or at a certain level, then you would get screened according to the European Society of Cardiology and American Heart Association recommendations. And certainly in Europe, that's usually with a 12-lead ECG, so 10 stickers placed across the chest and, 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 and on the limbs. And um, that takes an electrical recording of the heart's activity at that moment in time. Some protocols also entail an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound scan of the heart. Um, and that directly visualizes the heart muscle and the valves and the aortic roots, so the root of the aorta, the main pipe coming off the heart, to supply oxygenated blood around the body. Um, and so that's a comprehensive strategy to try to identify such conditions. And um, you, know, you mentioned tests before, and they're the basic tests that one would do. The ECG has actually stood the test of time and is the most sensitive tool to detect such inherited conditions um, with a sensitivity of high of as high as 90 to 95 percent um, to to detect these which is far more sensitive than simply a history and examination alone 
and even the echocardiogram because the ECG, of course, detects electrical conditions as well as being associated um, with cardiomyopathies, heart muscle disorders that would obviously show on the echocardiogram. Um, but on the ECG, it still is a, a, a good marker for detecting these conditions. There are also other small specialized tests that we can do, um, specifically when trying to identify pathology from physiology, including an exercise treadmill test to see if we can provoke an abnormal rhythm disturbance um, with an athlete on a bike or on a treadmill. Um, we can do a cardiac MRI, which is the gold standard imaging modality, which helps look at the heart muscle in the same way as the echocardiogram, but it has the added ability of overcoming um, physical um, challenges. Sometimes some people don't have as good echo pictures as others due to variety of factors, just body habitus as well. Um, lung shadowing can sometimes um, limit our echo views, whereas the MRI overcomes all of these and we can easily visualize the heart muscle, but also it has the advantage of looking for heart muscle inflammation and we inject contrast and that can show up. Um, it lights up part of the heart muscle if that has been affected, for example, with a um, condition that can cause scar. And then we do halter monitoring, ECG monitoring through leadless um, devices as opposed to the conventional devices that are, are three leads and hooked up to like a mobile phone. And that limits your mobility. But of course, athletes require mobility. And we want to try to get as accurate a picture of an athlete in their own environment. And therefore, we can do leadless ECG monitoring to try to detect an abnormal rhythm disturbance in their own environment. Okay, that's great. I mean, I, you know, I suppose the a really key takeaway there is that uh, a lot of the time, if it's an inherited cardiac disorder, you know, an athlete will be asymptomatic. Um, uh, but yeah, oh, you know, good variety of tests. And we're, we're going to talk a bit more about the screening uh, process a bit later on as well. So next question, what proportion of footballers who have suffered a cardiac arrest and survived are able to return to playing at the same level they played at before? And what might need to be in place to allow them to play safely? That's a good question. I think historically, the recommendations to allow anyone to undertake competitive exercise um, the, the recommendations were quite conservative and the restrictions that were put in place would be um, relatively strict um, and, and, and therefore the threshold to advise someone to play would be low. In Italy, even today, it by law, one can't play if they have a life-threatening cardiomyopathy or if they've had a defibrillator in place. And as, as we know, the high-profile events I've mentioned before, um, you know, the footballers have sought to work, apply their trade elsewhere in other countries. And the having a cardiac arrest is still a rare event. Um, and therefore, we don't really have a substantial cohort to say how many of them would return to play competitively i mean we know anecdotally that there are instances with for example ericsson who plays with a 
with the defibrillator now in, in the Premier League and for Denmark. And Fabrice Mamba, of course, retired at that time, which was over 10 years ago. Um, it depends on a variety of factors, including the type of condition that you have. It depends on um, the course of that particular disease. If something is going to get worse over time, and there are conditions out there, such as you know, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, ARVC or AVC, we know that exercise can certainly make that a lot worse, a lot quicker. And therefore, the threshold for advising someone to stop would be a lot lower. Over time, given the, the, the most common cardiomyopathy um, from an inherited perspective, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, so abnormal thickening of the heart muscle, um, uh, over time, our attitude has become a bit more relaxed as data sets have emerged to say, look, we can, in lower risk patients who haven't demonstrated high risk features, um, we can allow them to or advise that they may be able to play if they wish, um, provided certain criteria are met and, and, and they have to be kept in the close surveillance. But of course, in patients who have had a cardiac arrest, and that is a red flag, that is a high-risk feature. And then part of a shared decision-making process needs to happen, including, as I mentioned, the type of condition, a discussion of, of, of the course of that condition, um, how the player feels about it, how he or she would feel, feels about wishing to continue, how their family feel about it, and, of course, how their employer, i.e. the club, feels about it because if they do decide to play and they are employed then it's the club's responsibility to provide the necessary um, equipment and staff to ensure that if the worst were to happen again then you know they are fully equipped and fully responsive to making sure that the best outcome possible is um, achieved. And by that, I mean training with a pitch-side defibrillator, playing with a pitch-side defibrillator that's easily accessible and has been fully serviced. And by having an ambulance on, on standby um, or, and having an emergency response plan documented and made available for everyone to have a pitch-side physio or doctor um, or some trained personnel that could identify if a player goes down. Um, and and for looking after that player, you know, for example, advising that he or she shouldn't play in extreme conditions, for example, in in overtly hot conditions, or if they feel unwell due to any viral illnesses. Um, so yeah, provided those measures are taken into place, then at least that's the responsibility of the employer. But then there are so many other factors that need to be lined up, including, as I mentioned, the players. Um, choice, their family's choice, the doctor's um, advice, um, and um, and then the employer's perspective as well. Now, you you talked earlier about some of the tests that are done, and some of the some of these tests are involved in the screening. Um, but for the benefit of those unfamiliar with um, the details of the screening process, 
Could you outline for us what it involves and why? So, for example, you know, what are the initial tests? And then what would be the test that would actually come later if something abnormal is found? And then despite screening, why is it that some athletes seem to slip through the net? Okay. Well, uh, uh, screening programs vary in terms of of, of the tests. And, and, and that depends on resource availability um, and and interpretation of results. But um, you know, the basic tests would include a history examination and an ECG, as recommended by the European Society of Cardiology. And the ECG, as I mentioned, is a electrical tracing of the heart with a high sensitivity of up to 90 to 95% to detect electrical conditions and inherited heart muscle conditions. Um, some programs um, also add in an echocardiogram. So, for example, the Football Association in England, one of the largest screening program for junior athletes in, in the UK and, and possibly beyond in Europe, where they screen every 16-year-old, be it for um, a lower league club or a Premier League club. Every 16-year-old is entitled to an ECG and an echocardiogram. And that is historically been funded by the Professional Footballers Association, so the PFA, their union, um, and also um, supported by the FA's infrastructure. Now, part of my particular area of research was to was to look at the um, diagnostic yield of the, this large screening program that has been running for over 20 years. So, in fact, we looked at over 11,000 young mainly um, 16-year-old boys, but 5% were women um, at that time. Now, more and more women are quite rightly getting screened and, and our understanding of the female athlete's heart is also developing. But historically, out of these 11,000 um, players, about one in 250 had a life-threatening condition. And that's using comprehensive evaluation with an ECG and an echocardiogram. Um, one in 50 had a minor condition, like a valve abnormality or a small hole in the heart. So, for example, a bicuspid aortic valve or a small atrial septal or ventricular septal defect. But one in 250 were diagnosed with a life-threatening condition. Now, the good news is that out of the cohort that were diagnosed, which were there about 42 players who did have a life-threatening condition, 75% of those returned to play. So, you know, they had either a fixable, you know, uh, an electrical condition that could be fixed, like Wolf-Parkinson-White um, syndrome, for which they underwent an ablation, or they were monitored or kept under close surveillance. So out of the 11,000 um, players, eight unfortunately, died. Um, and two of them were known to have a cardiac condition, but six were not diagnosed with a condition at the age of 16. And the mean follow-up time was about seven years. So to answer your other question, unfortunately, a single snapshot look at the heart age 16 still doesn't catch everyone and no screening test is a hundred percent foolproof anyway you know and i think that does need to be taken into account now pro screening individuals 
will say, well, we need to do surveillance screening. So in Italy, they now adopt a, you know, a surveillance screening approach. And the FA, for instance, have um, a two-yearly recommendation that an ECG should be performed during those late adolescent years from 16 on to age of, the age of 25 um, with an ECG only in the first instance after their initial screen because the ECG sensitivity is high, it's um, more affordable for clubs and also you're likely to have an abnormal ECG change prior to any echo manifestation as well. So the ECGs, again, deemed to be a good test for that. So. A snapshot at the age of 16 doesn't always work. It did detect a number of individuals with a condition, who the majority of whom ended up returning to play. But yes, people do slip through the net. Now, that may be because of quiescent cardiomyopathy. It hasn't reared its head yet. And cardiomyopathy may well do so towards the late teenage or early 20s. Um, so it may be that some cardiomyopathies aren't expressed at that age just yet, or that an electrical condition may not be overtly manifest during the 10 seconds that you have your ECG. You know, your heart may be behaving normally at that stage. So um, there are a variety of reasons as to why things could slip through the net. And um, uh, we also need to talk about acquired conditions as well. So for example, heart inflammation that can occur at any stage of someone's um, life. And they don't necessarily all present at the same time and all get detected at the same time. Um, and therefore, that's another reason why something can develop later on in life. So heart attacks and cardiac arrests are often confused. To help people remember the difference between them, it's sometimes said that cardiac arrests are due to an issue with the electrics of the heart whereas heart attacks are due to an issue with the plumbing of the heart. So are footballers at risk of heart attacks as well as cardiac arrests? And if so, which demographic of athletes is at the greatest risk of heart attacks? Well, I think you're right. Conventionally, heart attacks are thought to be due to fearing of the coronary arteries, i.e. the plumbing of um, the heart arteries, and they plug into the heart muscle. So if one of those is blocked, that then causes a disruption to the blood supply of the heart. Um, and then that leads to a cardiac arrest eventually if that isn't fixed, either the clot retrieved or, um, or, or, or a stent is placed to improve the perfusion to the heart muscle. In fact, if you think about demographics, the coronary artery disease that I've just described is more common in those over the age of 35. In those between 14 and 35, inherited problems conventionally thought to be due to heart muscle disorders like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is abnormal thickening of the heart, like dilated cardiomyopathy, abnormal enlargement of the heart chambers, or heart muscle inflammation um, and um, scarring and fatty infiltration from a, an inherited perspective, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy if it affects the left side as well. And then you've got a whole load of electrical disorders such as Brugada syndrome, long QT syndrome, um, Wolf Parkinson White, that can disrupt the electrical pathway of the heart. So the coronary arteries may be completely normal, but due to electrical or inherent 
problems with the heart muscle itself, that's what leads to disruption of the electrical activity and a cardiac arrest, i.e. ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. In rare cases, you can get abnormal anatomy off the coronary arteries themselves. So it may be a plumbing issue, but not from a furring of the coronary arteries. It's more a congenital problem because you're born with anomalous coronary arteries. That is rare. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it sounds like, um, you know, people who might have these structural abnormalities, the coronary arteries um, could be more at risk of heart attack, say, than someone who doesn't. Um, But also athletes that are, I suppose, um, sort of past 35 um, are going to be more in in that that risk group. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, when we talk about footballers, um, the younger footballers are at risk of electrical and heart muscle disorders and the older footballers uh, or the retired footballers, as it were, um, are more at risk of coronary artery disease. Thankfully, we seem to be very much over the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the virus is now with us to stay and many worry about a link between COVID-19, the vaccines for it and heart issues. What does the evidence say? And what signs and symptoms should athletes and support staff be looking out for? Well, of course, you're right. Obviously, it had a huge impact, not just on sport, but globally. And through the screening programs and the policies um, that were initiated and then followed by um, sporting organisations, we were able to glean some information um, amongst athletic individuals with respect to COVID-19 illness. And what American and Israeli data um, suggested was that after a COVID-19 illness, about one in 200 athletes would be affected by heart muscle inflammation. And you can appreciate from the things I was mentioning before, you've got an ECG, you've got an echocardiogram, they're relatively easy to perform logistically, but it's the cardiac MRI that is the gold standard to show heart muscle inflammation by highlighting areas of inflammation um, within the myocardium. Um, And therefore, the studies that were carried out that, that, that um, under, in which athletes undertook cardiac MRIs did show that about one in 200 athletes with moderate COVID symptoms would also have heart muscle involvement. Um, I think the other thing to say is studies that have been carried out with respect to the vaccination show that the risk of heart muscle inflammation post-vaccination is about one in 20,000. So a a thousand times um, less common post-vaccination as opposed to post-illness itself. But of course, we only hear about the tips of the iceberg, you know, amongst the media or amongst um, um, uh, high-profile individuals. So I think think that is worth bearing in mind. That's what the evidence has, has, has shown with respect to um, athletic involvement. And then to answer your other question about what symptoms and signs one should look out for, I mean, COVID-19, um, the illness itself was so common um, that after a while, you know, the threshold to subject someone to cardiorespiratory tests um, became a, a lot higher during the third and fourth waves as, as people gained immunity. Um, 
and weren't as badly affected. But I suppose the red flags to look out for were on return to exercise. And there were programs that were designed for athletes to undertake a staged return to exercise um, so they didn't come back too hard too fast. But um, the red flags on return to exercise would be symptoms of shortness of breath, chest pain, palpitations, um, and, and feeling generally fatigued. So those sorts of um, symptoms we take more seriously and subject that particular group of athletes to further investigations after suffering from symptoms on return to exercise, as opposed to having your usual mild chorizal symptoms with the illness itself. We also advised a period of rest of up to 10 days um, post-symptom free um, to ensure that the heart muscle was you know, rested enough. Um, again, it was consensus recommendations from experts um, across the UK in sports and exercise medicine, in cardiology and respiratory medicine. Um, and and generally speaking, you know, we th- that's how we advised um, not just elite athletes, but even recreational athletes that we see in our NHS clinics that were asking about return to exercise regimes post-COVID. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. I found that really interesting and I'm sure the listeners have too. So thank you for giving up your time and for sharing your expertise with us. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. So listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the FMPA podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Alternatively, please check out the podcast section of the FMPA website. Thank you for listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day.